Hello, I'm Brad Riley, and you're listening to Forming the Spirit Within, a podcast where you'll find such things as in-depth Bible studies, some classes I teach on a variety of spiritual matters, as well as some conversations I want to have with you and others along the way, all of which I hope will inspire you to a deeper life in Jesus Christ. In his second Corinthian letter, St. Paul the Apostle described our lives as a process of transformation that comes to us by looking full into the face of Jesus And as we behold His glory, we are transformed into His glorious likeness in ever-increasing measure. What an amazing thought, that we can be transformed into the very glory of Jesus. That is my prayer for you, that in some small way this podcast will help you in your transformation from glory into even greater glory, as Christ forms His Spirit within you. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast and not only listen, but join in on the conversation with a question or a comment. Thanks so much for listening, and may the Lord be with you. So this morning we're going to begin a brand new study in the books of First and Second Thessalonians. I prayed about what to do after the Gospel of John, and I, I landed on these two. I, I took the week off after the Gospel of John. I get so intense in the studies that I don't always think ahead. I don't have a plan uh, ahead. John took a couple of years to study, but... Uh, You know, I I just felt drawn to these two books. We haven't studied these two books. They are, as we'll learn in the overview today, today's going to be an overview. I'm going to give you a a look at both books and some of the major themes and history behind them. But they are powerful letters for many, many reasons. They're small books, but they're very, very powerful. I've been drawn to them a lot, I think, Partially because I read these, I read scriptures from First uh, Thessalonians at every funeral. I mean, there's some very powerful words in here about death and dying and the second coming of the Lord and things, and they're just always prevalent in my mind because of that. And uh, and then attending uh, as I was preparing for Richard's funeral, Richard North's, and and those, I just thought I was drawn to these two books. I said, you know, they're but they're more than just words about funerals and words about life and death and, and the second coming. They really are the earliest, most, I, I, want, I want to use maybe the word succinct, uh, simple yet profound presentation of the Apostle Paul of the gospel. Okay, these are, these are letters to a church that he founded in a very important place, a very important city, an important place, Thessaloniki is the name of the city. In Greek, Thessaloniki, and the Latinized version is Thessalonica, or Thessalonica, uh, but I tend to lean toward the Greek Thessaloniki. Um, a city still in existence today. The name has been shortened up to Saloniki, or Saloniki, or Salonica, but it's still in, in existence today. Can't say that about too many of the cities in the scriptures. But uh, as I've been drawn to it, because it's such a powerful presentation of the gospel and and what it means to live a Christian life. And so we're going to explore those themes and things as we go through it today. But I want to to give you just a few basic facts as we begin today, before we get into the themes. We know that the author is the Apostle Paul. He says it right in the opening words. This letter is written from Paul, Silas, and Timothy in the name of all three of them. They're writing to the Thessalonians. 
Paul Silas. And here, some of your scriptures might say Silvanus. That's another uh, word for the name Silas. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Around the year 50 to 51 AD, scholars, most scholars truly believe what you're reading here, what we're going to be studying, is the earliest writings of the New Testament. Okay, if Jesus died in 33 AD, and the apostles are being sent out around the world, you know, they, they, we know the church started right there in Jerusalem, and it struggled through the times in Jerusalem, and and eventually, you know, this is only like 17 years later, roughly. You know, that's that's uh, in, in thinking about how today that sounds like a long time because of how fast time travels and how how fast time uh, moves by and communication is so instant. But you know, for for this fledgling movement of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Church of Jesus Christ, 17 years in, in the first century was really uh, you know, interesting to think it, it really was not that long a time, but in a way, a long time. And they weren't just printing books. They weren't just, you know, oh, hey, let's write all about Jesus. You know, these letters that we have called the New Testament. Now, there were the Gospels that we have, of course, were, were written down on purpose to, to record the life and the, or to tell the life of Jesus Christ, the life and times of Jesus Christ. And, and those, are, those are a little different. But when we get to the letters, the epistles, the other books of the New Testament, they're written in response. They really truly are letters. They're letters to churches and to people. Just like you and I, would, it's kind of a lost art today. Very few people write letters anymore. Uh, everything's done electronically with email. I guess we could call email a letter in a way. You know, or text now, it's even less email and more text. But that's kind of like a letter. And, and so that's what these are. These are letters written to this church that's very dear to the heart of the Apostle Paul, just barely 17, 18 years after the death of Jesus. So the church is just spreading out around the world. Um, we know that it's in a place called Macedonia. Does anybody know where Macedonia is? You've heard the name, of course. In the biblical days, Macedonia was also Greece. Okay, today it's a, it's a smaller section of the of the country, but Macedonia referred to all of what we would know as Greece. It's also where Philip of Macedonia, who was the great conqueror, uh, Alexander the Great, the, his son Alexander became, you know, conqueror of the world, the known world at that time from Macedonia. Uh, the Greek culture. You know, went out and conquered the world, and this is, this is the, what is, uh, then was one of the most important, if not the most important city. You know, the, the kind of the capital state of, the capital area. Greece was a part of kind of like city states. It was a, uh, kind of a fellowship of city states, and Athens, of course, was the main one with the big capital, Athens, but. Thessaloniki was a city up on the port of the Aegean Sea, on the northern coast and the Aegean Sea, and it was a very important city. It was very important for military. It was very important for commerce. It was the route. It was on the route from the Roman Empire all the way to the east. It was very important center, a hub of activity, 
a big city for Bible days, okay? Even today, Salonika, or Saloniki has over a million people. It's a big city. Um, and so it was big then, too. And so we want to see that, that this was an important place. Now, how this letter came to be, or these letters, how, how they came to be is a little more uh, interesting. On Paul's second missionary journey, we know that there was a time where he was thinking about where he was going to go, and and it, it tells us that we can read in the book of Acts all the way from chapters 15 through 18 really record his second missionary journey in the book of Acts. And we're going to look at a few specific examples today. Uh, you know, Paul was he was he was really drawn by the Holy Spirit to go to Macedonia. And there was a providential leading of the Holy Spirit for Paul to go and found a church in Macedonia. And so Thessaloniki becomes uh, just such an important center for the Christian faith. Why? Because it was, it was a strategic city, like we said, on the way. If, if the church could grow and really take hold there, it would be exposed, the, the movement of Christ would be exposed to a lot of people. It was a big center for, much like in the East, Ephesus was a major center uh, in the East. And of course, Rome being the capital of the world, you know, we're on our, the Christianity is always on its, on its way to Rome. But uh, so Thessaloniki is very important along the way. Now, the interesting thing about this is that the letter is written after Paul founds the church. First Thessalonians is written after Paul founds the church. Uh, we're going to read just a little bit about it here, and we're going to actually look at that scripture in uh, the book of Acts. So if you want to turn to the book of Acts right now, we'll, we'll get there in just a couple of minutes. And I'll mark the page here. We'll read a few scriptures that kind of talk to us about that. But in this letter, this church that was founded, this letter is written probably just a few months later. We're going to see how Paul left the city, came to found the church, to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. He leaves. We're going to read about that. And then a few months, somewhere afterwards, he's so... Is that my phone or you? Well, you caught me by surprise there with that one. <laughs> I thought, oh boy. Um the, the, uh, so what, what was I saying? <laughs> <laughs> he took me off there. I'm, I'm oh, yes, he left the city. So when he left the city, he was so excited to learn and interested to learn how are they doing that he sent Timothy back. Timothy went back, and Timothy brought back a report to Paul, and it's that report to Paul that is the cause of this letter. So he's... He's writing as a report to what he's heard from Timothy about how they're doing. And then, of course, we know there's a second letter, and we're going to talk about the themes of both of them here this morning. But for now, let's begin with this thought. Let's look at Acts chapter 17, the book of Acts chapter 17, and we'll read just a few verses talking about Paul's going to Thessaloniki. I'll start at the beginning of that chapter. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolos and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, 
went into them and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, quote, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ, end quote. And some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest... They let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Now stop right there. What we've just heard is an account on this of this going of Paul to the city of Thessaloniki. And it tells us right away that he goes there and it says that he does what? He always does this everywhere Paul goes. What did he do? He went straight to the synagogue, okay, wherever the synagogue was, the center of life for God's people, the Jewish people. And it says that he reasoned with them from the scriptures. And remember, that would be the Old Testament, okay, primarily the prophets and the book of Psalms. And these speak Jesus everywhere. One of the things, just a side comment real quick. One of the things that I think it would do well of us as Christians in the 21st century to, to do is to become better students of the Old Testament. Part of the failure of much of the evangelical movement has been a a poor teaching and preaching of the Old Testament. It's been used too often as proof texts of of prophetic utterances and things that are going to happen supposedly in prophecy and things like that. But Christ is everywhere in the Old Testament. That, if you think about it, the church of Jesus Christ as it was founded in the first century and grew and spread throughout the whole empire, the whole known world, it did it all in the Old Testament. These letters that we call New Testament weren't even, weren't even written yet. We're, we're 17, 18 years into the church. They haven't even written the, the New Testament yet. And the New Testament wasn't a book that was written and said, oh, here, by the way, this will prove everything we've ever talked about. These are just letters written over time. And years and decades and collected and spread around to preach from place to place with no mail, no internet, no way to, no way. I mean, it was just word of mouth and letters being carried by individuals to congregations and churches. It took hundreds of years for the New Testament to form into a cohesive unit that was understood as inspired by God. Which books? There were much, many more letters than just what we have in our 27 books. But we know that over time, the, the early church fathers, over the first 300 years, preached f- 
through these books and warned of some of the books, and we saw a settling down of which books were trustworthy and which ones weren't, which ones were consistent with the story of Jesus and the gospel and which ones weren't. And so that eventually, in a church council, in the end of the 4th century, which would be the late, three, about 300, three, the year 391, I think, and I believe the church council was called the Council of Carthage, that great church fathers like uh, St. Athanasius and Augustine and these people who were present at these councils uh, put forth what would be an official list or canon of the New Testament, the 27 books we know, and they were adopted at that council. From then on, we had a New Testament. That's That's 300 years after Apostle Paul is going around spreading the gospel and founding churches. So I just want us to want to raise your appreciation for the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the story of Jesus Christ. It's the story of God. And everywhere we look in the Old Testament, we should be looking for Jesus Christ. Because that's what Paul was using. When it says for three Sabbaths, he went and reasoned with them from the scriptures. He was showing them Christ in the Old Testament. Wouldn't you have loved to have been in those talks? Wouldn't that be awesome? So uh, anytime I can find a scholar or a book and some writings that really bring out Christ in the Old Testament. It's powerful. I have a book that is, uh, I will highly recommend it to you. Okay, highly recommend it to you if you want to write the title down. It's called Christ in the Psalms. I'm pretty sure that's the exact title, but I could be a little off on that. But if you Google that, Christ in the Psalms, you'll get it. The author, his name is Patrick Henry Reardon. Patrick Henry Reardon. Um, he is a Antiochian Eastern Orthodox priest in Chicago, Illinois. And he is a scholar, uh, an incredible scholar. Uh, he wrote a book. He takes every one of the Psalms and shows you how they speak of Christ. It's beautiful. It's powerful. So a little side, uh, side note there. So let's come. Question or comment? Yeah, a little advertisement for his book, <laughs> Father Patrick Henry Reardon. What a what a what a name! And, and I love if you ever listen to him, he has some podcasts. His voice he's got a big booming voice, kind of sounds like this. <laughs> One of those voices I wish I had as a preacher, you know. Just uh, <laughs> he just I love, I could listen to him all day long. Uh, he's really good. But that name Patrick Henry, you know, from the American Independence, you know, mm-hmm. war, such a such a name. You know, I don't, maybe I maybe I should have called myself Bradley James Riley, huh? That, that's my real full name, Bradley James Riley. Because all the really good, smart authors, they use three names. You know, Patrick Henry Reardon. And my dear friend over here at Friends University, James Brian Smith. You know, he, he, all of his books say James Brian Smith. Now, he goes by Jim Smith. People that know him love him, Jim Smith, but, but James Brian, I'm thinking... That was my first mistake. I didn't. I put my books out, the two that I have under Brad Riley. You know, who's this guy? But Bradley James Riley. When I hear Bradley James Riley, I think I'm in trouble. Yeah, exactly. My mother, you know, when I was a little, or my grandmother or somebody, Bradley James Riley, you can get in here. So I digress. Back to the scripture. So he goes for three weeks, and he's trying to explain to these Thessalonians, Thessalonians, He's trying to explain to them Christ from the scripture. They're Jews, okay? And it says some believed him. He won some converts. 
it tells us that not only some, it says some Jews believed him. But it says a lot. It says a multitude of Greeks believed him. Okay, now remember this is about the year 50, 51. And there is, the, the, the church of Jesus Christ is very Jewish. Okay, started in Jerusalem as a movement of Judaism. Okay, these, these a fulfillment. Greeks are going to the synagogue? These Greeks, well, they were attracted. They were attracted. They, they could have been Greek Hellenistic Jews. Okay. But we know, as we study the fullness of this letter, we know that many of them were pagans. But I think Paul drew a crowd. I think people came to hear. And it tells us also, I think I want to note a footnote here. We have some Jews, lots of Greeks, and one more group that he points out. Women. women, quite a few. He says he uses the phrase in this scripture, not not a few, not not a few, which means quite a few. Lots of women in the early movement of the church, and he'll you'll see that repeated as we go through scripture. Leading women, it even says, quite a few leading women. So these were women that that were uh, well thought of in places of importance. But it says, verse 5 is kind of a telling verse there. It says what? It says the Jews, but the Jews were not convinced. Some of them we know were, but most of them weren't. But the Jews were not persuaded. And it says they became envious, and what did they do? They, they actually rounded up a mob. It says they went to the marketplace and got to be... Now, what can we learn from that? They went to the marketplace. We don't even know that those people are Jews. Those are probably just Greek citizens. They went to the, probably even some of the more, shall we say, uh, unruly Greek citizens that would maybe be glad to participate in a mob. Well, it says the bad characters. The bad characters in your version, yes. <laughs> so, you know, they knew who to go get. We, you know, we gonna, if we're going to stop this movement of Jesus Christ in this city, if we're going to stop this movement of the Apostle Paul and what he's trying to spread, we need some mercenaries we need yeah, some help so go they get a mob and then and they start spreading a, a riot basically and they go to the leaders of the city and they say you know i love the phrase the way he does this he, he he labels paul he said these people who have been turning the world upside down so what does that tell us Tells us Christianity, the message of the gospel is working everywhere it goes because it's turning the world upside down. <laughs> and in Thessaloniki, they'd already heard about that. This wasn't the first time they'd heard about this movement. It's the first time somebody like the apostles came and founded a church, but it's not the first time they heard about it because they already know these Jews do that, hey, this whole thing's been turning the world upside down everywhere it goes. We can't let that happen here. Because they're saying there's another king besides Caesar. So here they are applying to that old, you know, Caesar is king, uh, Caesar is lord type thing. And, and his name is Jesus. And, you know, they're, they're appealing to the, the Roman government uh, policy of no king but Caesar. And it works. What happens here? They, drag, they go to this guy named Jason. We don't know anything else about Jason from scripture other than he was obviously important in that city and he's somebody that helped Paul and Silas and Timothy stay there with him and uh, he kind of says we, we get the feeling that he hid them at least they went in to get him and so when they went in to bring him out they couldn't find Paul and Silas but they took Jason out and took Jason before the 
tribunal of the leaders and and say Jason here is uh, one of he's been he's been holding on to these guys giving them safe harbor and and what happens to Jason well he escapes with his life but it tells us here in verse 9 so when they had taken security from Jason and the rest so they exacted some form of penalty and some form of must be when I when I read the word security there some form of promise, if you will, that this is not going to tear it up. What does your say? Posted, posted bond. Posted bond. So there, there's a security or a bond or a way of we're not going to let you go unless you pay for this. Yeah. So it's important to note that they let them go, and it says then that they did what? Then the brethren immediately sent Paul. They knew where Paul and Silas were. They were probably hiding them. So then they went, and then they got them, and they said, you need to get away from here. And they got away at night and went to Berea. They get to Berea. Now, this is a fascinating story that's not necessarily pertinent to the study of the Thessalonians, but it is, it, it is fascinating. If you follow the story of the Bereans, they go there. Paul's sharing the story of Christ with the Bereans from the Old Testament, and it says that they were excited about it, and they wanted to learn more, and they start studying the scriptures to see if these things are true. So it's a little different presentation, or uh, how it's perceived there in Berea, how it's accepted. And it says they, they did with, in verse 11, they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out if these things were so. And many of them, many of the Jews there believed but also, again, lots of Greeks and, a notice, again, prominent women. I think it's interesting to note that Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, is noting that women were a big part of this movement. Um, and, and then it says it immediately, it says, uh, but when the Jews, verse 13, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also. And stirred up the crowds. These guys are persistent, aren't they? They're just not gonna. They're not gonna rest. They're gonna. They're on a crusade now. They're gonna go to their fellow city and make sure it doesn't get turned upside down. So again, they stir up a mob. Uh, immediately, then it says the brethren sent Paul away. I think it's important to note that when Luke's writing the book of Acts, he calls them the brethren. The brethren, and we saw that uh, in verse ten too. Then the brethren. This is this tells us that there was a church formed. Okay, there were believers. There were people who were accepted into the family in the body of Christ, and they're the brethren. They're the brothers in Christ, if you will. So these words are chosen very carefully by the Apostle Paul. I mean, the Luke, the writer of that book of Acts. And and then he, of course his journey carries on from there, and he goes to Athens. And we're not studying the whole second missionary journey of Paul. But I wanted to give you that background for First and Second Thessalonians. How the church in Thessaloniki came to be and how the letter came to be. Because within a few months of being gone, when he's off to Athens or somewhere like that, uh, I think he actually ends up in Corinth when he uh, writes the letter. This letter is written from Corinth. And... Pretty sure about that. I could be wrong, but I didn't put that in my notes. But he he's so interested. He sends Timothy back, and he wants to hear how they're doing. He's concerned for them. You know, like a good bishop would be, a good overseer. 
He's caring for his flock. And this is and what comes back is, is a report that, well, they're doing pretty good. There's some issues. There's some challenges to, to standing firm. And I want to talk about those themes. So here, are the, there's two Greek words I wrote on the board that are going to be very important in our study of First and Second Thessalonians as we discuss the major themes. In the balance of our time this morning, I'm going to give you four major themes to these two books, okay, that we'll be bringing out. But two Greek words we want to come, become very familiar with. The first one I wrote is hagiosmos. Anybody want to take a stab at what that means from some of our previous studies? Hagiosmos. Okay, if I, if I use just the first part, hagia, or hagia, haya, it's pronounced a little different ways. I think if you're English, you got to put that G in there a little bit. <laughs> Hagia Sophia. Have you ever heard of Hagia Sophia? Hagia Sophia? Have you heard of the Church of Hagia Sophia? The Church of Hagia Sophia is one of the great wonders of the world. It is the church in Constantinople, or today Istanbul, that was built as the Emperor Constantine when, when he became a Christian and moved the empire to to the city he founded for his own name called Constantinople, and he built this incredible dome-shaped church, and it's called the Church of Hagia Sophia, holy wisdom. Sophia means wisdom. Therefore, Hagia means holy. So Hagiasmos is holiness or sanctification. Major theme of this book, or these two books, is the idea of what it means to be holy and holiness and how to live it. And uh, so we're going to be studying through that. The second word I put here is parousia. Parousia. Okay, that's how it's pronounced, parousia. Anybody want to take a stab at what that means? Parousia, have you heard that one? Okay, it means appearing. And it's a term used, it means a sudden appearing. Okay? And it literally is a term used for the second coming of Jesus Christ. So when we start to think and looking at the scripture in its eschatological, the word eschatology means the study of the last things or the end times. So when we look at this book has a lot to say about the eschatology of our theology. Okay, So we're going to be studying that, this idea of the second coming. Actually, here's what's fascinating. Every one, there's five chapters in 1 Thessalonians. All five chapters end with the thought of Jesus' second coming. All five chapters. I mean, that is a pretty recurring theme, isn't it? As we see how that happens. Uh, we'll see more about that as we go through it. Um, so, but I, you often hear sermons, if you've heard sermons based out of these books, it seems like every sermon written out of these books is always about the second coming of Jesus it's always about the rapture and, and this type of studies. I, I, that's not what I'm teaching these books for. Those are important themes, but these books have so much more to say than that. Okay, And when we get to that famous scripture in uh, that talks about the uh, that everybody labels as the rapture, we'll talk about it. It's not for this morning. We'll talk about it. That's actually the word rapture is not in the Bible. It's not in there. Okay. That there, there's this, this thought of being caught up, uh, snatched up or snatched away. That, that, those words are in there. And that's been had the word rapture applied to it. Um, but we'll look at how the early church looked at those words and, and how maybe we can think about them too. 
But here's the basic themes. Okay, here's four basic themes that I want to give you. Uh, that are the, I guess, really five. I'm going to give you five. I'm going to count holiness as the first major theme. Okay, holiness. Let's, let me give you three scriptures. In, in chapter three, this is first. I'm going to give you scriptures from the studies we'll be looking at now. First Thessalonians, chapter three, in verse 13, it says this. Uh, I'll just read 11 through 13. This. And now may the Lord, may that may our God and Father Himself of our Lord and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God. Blameless in holiness before our God. And Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. That's the closing words of chapter 3. You see holiness as a synonym to blameless. So those are going to be important words, blameless and holiness in our study. Another scripture here for you, chapter 4, verse 3. He goes on to say, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Okay, that word sanctification there in the Greek is hagiasmos. Okay, holiness. So holiness has a lot to do with this, uh, with God's. It's, it's everything about God's will, and he's he's connecting it directly, saying this is God's will, your holiness. And then, of course, in verse chapter five, verse twenty-three, uh, we've probably heard this one preached a lot, being in the the holiness movement. In chapter five. Verse 23 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, or yours might say entirely, or through and through. You get the picture. It's a complete act, this idea of sanctification. And he says, And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless. And there's that word again, which we saw in chapter 3, blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's in reference to his second coming again. So holiness is a major theme here that we're going to be discussing. Another theme is the idea of being an example to others. Being, I didn't write these all on the board for you, but so holiness is the number one theme. And I'll go ahead and write it down here. One is holiness. Two is uh, being an example, being an example to others. Paul writes a lot about that. Just give you, in verse uh, 7 of chapter 1, the very first chapter, he says this. He says, and verse 6 says, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. So this idea of being examples is very important. Um, the next one is the idea of walking worthy of God or living worthy of God's calling. So three, I'll post that as uh, living worthy of God's calling. How many of you would just say right now, boy, I think I'm worthy of God's calling. We, we don't like that. It doesn't feel right, does it? 
We, we know instinctively we're not worthy. We need the mercy of God to be worthy. But yet we're called to walk in a way that is worthy. How do we do that? Look, look at his calling here. I think the example for this I've got is in 2, chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12 says... I'll always pick up a little early. Verse 10 says, You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Right there. God calls each of us to walk in a manner that is worthy. And I think it's very important. We're going to connect the dots when we study these books. We're going to connect the dots that the only way we can walk worthy is by the power of his spirit. And that is what holiness is all about. We can't do it on our own. But yet we're called to live it out. Next, uh, next one is the idea of standing firm. Or standing fast, okay? Standing firm in faith. Standing firm in faith. Let's look at chapter 3, verse 8. Did you hear an example from the apostle there? Therefore, verse 7, Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. Standing fast or standing firm. What's that mean? To stand fast or to stand firm in your faith. What do you suppose Paul means by that? Believe. Don't waver. Don't. In your belief, don't waver. Okay. See, what we're going to find from the response that Paul gets back from Timothy about how things are going in this church is that while they believe... Eh, but a little struggle staying true to things. Isn't that true of all of our lives? Yes, Kent. Uh, you know, back when they were crucifying the Christians, they had to stand firm. Wow. And as today, you know, yeah, they're massacring Christians all over the place. And. We, you're right, you're right. There are places in our world today, so many places where Christians are being killed for their faith, are being martyred, and uh, I think in every age there's been martyrs. But what's really a challenge to us, and I think also one of the reasons I want to study these two books, is because I love the simple beauty of the call to holiness and standing firm because the church in our modern, sophisticated American culture is struggling greatly to do that. I see churches everywhere wavering, and, and Christians everywhere wavering, and this is a this is a real problem. Well, just recently they were talking about, I think it was some place down in Florida, maybe they were accusing the church of being a hate mongers. Yeah. yeah, because they they didn't conform to societies. Right. Uh, and and make no mistake of uh, whatever. Right, and make no mistake, <clears throat> the norms of our society are changing rapidly. They are. Yeah. Rapidly, yeah. the norms. You know, it's a sociological term. 
the norms, what, what things that are accepted as just common and natural, uh, they're, they're changing rapidly. And um, we have to figure out how we're going to stand firm and do that. And all, hear, me, hear me carefully. Stand firm in the love of Christ. Okay? Christ didn't fight back. Christ loved back. <laughs> he just gave love back. You know, and, and I'm telling you, it's going to be a challenge for our culture and our way and the generations coming soon after us. It's going to be a huge challenge. How can we stand for Christ? And to stand for Christ means to stand in love. Love your, let us never forget, Christ said, love your enemies. Don't fight back with your enemies. Don't go debate your enemies. Love them. And here's the challenge. This is a challenge for us today. Even in our pulpits across America, it's a challenge. Because many, many preachers just want to fight back with words. And, and I'm telling you, our words will always be empty unless they're first preceded by love shown through our acts of our lives. We, we have to truly... Do we, you have to ask us, do we really love everyone? Do we really love people that are really different from us? Do we really love people that we perceive are caught in the depths and throes of sin? Boy, if we don't, we are lost ourselves. That's the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is a life of radical love. <coughs> radical The only thing that transforms sinners into saints is radical love. Think about that for a little while. Jesus, that's right. Jesus was willing to snub all the norms of his culture and associate with the lowest of society. In fact, sit down and eat with them. That was uncalled for in their society, in their culture. That was dirty. That was wrong. And Jesus said, that's the level to which I'll go because I will go as far as I can to reach anyone you think in your culture is lost and dirty. And that's and what dirty. we're supposed to do. It's what we're called to do. We're called to be like Christ, let's face it. And it's, it's a challenge. So there is a, there's a big degree of self-righteousness that has crept into the Christian churches of our day. Self-righteousness, oh boy. Self-righteousness, that is a struggle. When we think we're so holy, when we think we're so right, when we think we're so... Oh, the only way to fight self-righteousness is to continually repent. Repent, repent. The life of a Christian is a life of repentance. We'll talk about that when we get into our talks on sanctification. There are some within our movement, the holiness movement, that have saw that, that my English is terrible when I'm just off the grammar, off the top here. I have saw, man, that's horrible. That caught me. Have seen or saw, you know, I can't decide if I want to talk passively or actively. You know? There are some in our, in our, call, in our movement that, that have seen sanctification as such a perfected act that they never, that they could never sin again. And that, I'm, I'm telling you, that is not right. That's what my brother thought. It's he, not right. He's a Nazarene, but he thought that once he was saved, he'd never sound again. And let me tell you what. Oh, see, I didn't grow up Nazarene. I didn't grow up in the holiness movement. So the idea of repentance and confession was just fine with me. I'm very well in my sins. 
So it was foreign to me to be a part of a church where people thought they didn't sin. We, we don't. Get, I can remember early days of my life in this movement 30 years ago and, and teaching a Sunday school class and, and having people challenge me because I talked about the idea of confessing our sins. And them saying, what are you talking about? You know, we don't confess. We don't need to say that. You know, that's very Calvinist. We sin every day in thought, word, and deed. I'm thinking, yeah, you don't, you don't believe that? I mean, the realities are, what did, what did Jesus teach us in the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our sins, our transgressions, as we forgive those who... He taught us to pray that every day. That's a form of confession, ladies and gentlemen. And, and we better realize that we are not perfect in our actions. We can be perfect in our hearts, and that's what holiness is about. Now, perfect hearts can lead to perfect actions. I'm going to give you a statement that I'm, I'm going to give you. A, we, I'm getting way ahead of myself. This, this will come out in, in the study, but this is an overview, right? So I'm just going to, we'll come back to it, okay? But this is important to our conversation here today and why I love these books of First and Second Thessalonians. This whole idea of being perfect of being sanctified entirely. I think one of the best statements I've ever read on it was by one of our Nazarene theologians, who's uh, of blessed memory now, Dr. Richard Taylor. Dr. Richard Taylor, in a book he wrote called A Right Conception of Sin. I've loaned that book out to many people through the years. Uh, uh, In fact, I remember loaning it to Don. Uh, once upon a time, he said, can I read that book? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. We had this conversation once. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's a book every preacher has to read. Every pastor in training has to read. Probably not that many lay people have read it. It's not hard to read, really. It's not some theological treatise that's hard to understand, but I would recommend it to you, A Right Conception of Sin. Um, he says this, very important. I love the way he says it. So I'm probably paraphrasing the quote because you know I read the quote years ago, but I think you'll get the point. The point was, he said, there is a world of difference between the statement, I'm saved, I'm sanctified, and able not to sin, and the statement, I'm saved, I'm sanctified, and not able to sin. World, think, yeah, world of difference between able not to and not able to. Okay? And so what he's saying is our theology is that we believe in, in the theology of being enabled by the Spirit of God living within us to rise above sin when tempted. And that's a moment by moment, day by day, living, breathing relationship with the Holy Spirit of God. That is the entirely sanctified experience when we have entirely devoted ourselves to him and he's entirely filled us and then we're walking in that moment by moment living breathing relationship with the holy spirit of god leading and guiding it's able not to sin but that's entirely different from saying just because we've devoted ourselves to him and we've received his infilling that we are never able to sin again we're always going to be tempted we're always going to be susceptible to falling okay and falling away. That is, so we'll, we'll flesh that out even more when we get there, but just throw that out for you. That's very, very important, this idea. So all that I threw out there as standing firm. There's one more. Um, one more, I was looking for my pen here to write on the board. Here it is. 
Um, and that is the idea of moral purity, morality, moral purity. Number five, to have moral purity. Very important in these letters. It, it, it's, and remember, these are the first letters that Paul wrote to a church that we have that, that have made it into our scriptures. And that theme is major. Why was it major? Because it's a major problem. And 21 centuries later, it's still a major problem. It's maybe more major when we think about how degraded our society has become in the use of technology and immorality. It just blows my mind sometimes when I think about it. And when I think about how God is so faithful and so patient with us in a culture that is so degraded, you know, um, and as we study, we'll learn. Go ahead. It's still paralleling, though. And what? No wonder we should pursue the Old Testament because what happened to Paul is happening today. That's right. When they talk about Jesus, and yeah. See what we we use the new so often uh, evangelical ministers we use the New Testament as a proof text. We're not a proof text. I'm going to prove to you all these things through the New Testament. We do that too much with the Bible. If there are proof texts in the Bible, they would be more in the Old Testament because they're fulfilled in the New, and that's proof. But ultimately, the Bible should not be used as a proof text for anything. It should be used as a story of God's love and how he reaches out to humanity and how he has redeemed and offered us a way to be redeemed. Uh, it's, it is truly the story of God. And the story, I love Sean Gladding's book that we had Sean Gladding. Y'all remember Sean Gladding when he was here six, seven years ago? I don't know what it was. I lose track of time. Bald-headed guy with the English accent and the long goatee. Love him, love him dearly. He wrote that book, The Story of God, The Story of Us. If you didn't read it then, read it now. Okay, the story of God. In fact, I, for some reason, I ended up with like five or six copies, if you want one. I was unpacking all my books, you know, as I set up my office. In, in my office, I've been setting up the books in my house. And I'm like, wow, where did all these books come from? I've got five or six of those. Um, the story of God, the story of us. And it's, this, it's the whole story of the Bible, Old Testament and New, in a narrative form. In other words, in story form. He creates these characters and you live the story of God out, and you see how they're really our story, too. It's not the story of people that lived two, 3,000 years ago. It's the story of humanity, and that's the same in every age. Humans are still the same today. There's, the Ecclesiastes writer said, there's no new sin under the sun. Okay? The, story of God's, the story of humans are the same in any age, and that's why the gospel is always appropriate in any age. Well, a couple of words real quick about the second Thessalonian letter which we'll get to after the first. Paul found reason to write another letter to them because after he wrote the first letter to encourage them uh, on the things that he saw were good and also to work on these five things, he there was also, uh, it was word got back to them that people were actually struggling with this whole second coming of Christ problem. He wasn't coming. Some of them start, some people within their church and within their movement started to teach that, oh, he's already come. You know, we missed it. He's already come. 
And then some people were getting so wrapped up in the thought, well, his coming is so imminent that they quit their jobs. And, and they were so consumed by the thought. And so he has a lot of advice for them. So we get a lot of eschatological advice in that second book. It was really starting to shake their faith and that Paul needed to write another a letter to, again, affirm them and confirm them in their faith and to counsel them in this standing firm and fast. So that's kind of a, just a very rough, brief overview uh, of, the, uh, of the books of First and Second Thessalonians. Very important books of scripture. I will um, offer those to you over the next, whatever, how many weeks it takes us. Mm-hmm. You know how that goes. We'll see how fast we go through them. But uh, it's eight chapters between the two books is all. So what, that maybe what's that, maybe a year's worth? I don't know. No, I'm just joking with you. Just joking. Um, thank you for coming today. I really appreciate your being here. As always, you can find this on the, the podcast. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm starting a new element to the podcast. They're little 10-minute conversations. I posted one this morning. Uh, I posted one this morning just in thoughts I had about these two books. And so if, you're, if you follow the podcast, you'll get notifications of little ones. It's not just going to be about Bible study anymore. It's going to be a little 10-minute thoughts and conversations about things that I feel the Lord wants me to say and speak and talk. And, and I want to invite you to talk back. And you, there's places on those podcasts where you can actually comment, make comments or ask questions or whatever. But uh, hopefully it'll begin more of a conversation that'll carry on even after our class time. So thanks again for being here. Let's close with prayer. I I want to remind you to pray for Sylvia. Sylvia is not able to be with us today because she has found she's got some issues with her heart that that her tests this week have showed there's some major things they need to address. Uh, I won't go into all the details. I don't know that I could go into all the details. But just remember her and pray for her because she would... It, it just she would be here. She would not want to miss today. And so we're going to pray for a good, safe, fast resolution to her heart issues because in all other ways she's very strong. And, and uh, so keep her in your prayers. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, what a privilege to gather together today in time with your word. I pray, Father, that you would uh, open our hearts, open our minds, to be uh, moved as we study these dear letters of uh, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians in the coming weeks. Open our hearts to these major themes. Let your Holy Spirit move and convict us wherever we need convicting. And teach us through your word. Not through mine, but through yours. And we remember Sylvia now in this moment in time and ask for your healing touch upon her. Believing in the procedures that she will be uh, incurring soon that they will be for her healing for her benefit, restoring her to health. We ask this in the strong name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Well, that's all we have time for today, and I want to thank you again for listening in. I hope that our time together has been a blessing to you. While you're here, why not take a moment to add a comment or perhaps ask a question? You know, Forming the Spirit Within is a listener-supported ministry, and I really appreciate your feedback and your support. If you'd like more information on how to be a part of this ministry, you can find it online at bradreillyministries.org. Again, thanks for listening and spending the time with us today, and may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you 
as He forms His Spirit within you.